0: Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you're struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode.
1: You know, when
2: I left Sony to go meet my family, they told me I hadn't been there long enough to acquire any leave. So if I left, they wouldn't. I wouldn't have a job when I came back. Uh, but then I told them the whole story. They said, well, go on and go. You'll, have, you'll be fine. And so when I came back, people were saying, wow, this sounds like it would have been a, a good movie. I kept insisting on writing it. And they kept saying no, because I hadn't been to college and hadn't any writing experience. So I felt like, well, it's my story. I didn't have to ask anybody anyway. So I got some legal pads and start writing it by hand.
1: Hi, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell.
0: And I'm Collier Landry, and this is The Survivor Squad Podcast.
1: Yay, another episode.
0: Another episode. Tara, we are uh, in our second week of recovery from CrimeCon.
1: Oh my gosh, I got sick afterwards.
0: I think I'm the only person that didn't get like sick or get COVID.
1: Right? So many of our friends were testing positive, but we just also chatted with someone that will be out in a couple weeks their episode and they were feeling a little worn down but they said it was just from the energy
0: it was just worn down from the energy yeah crime con can be overwhelming for survivors and for podcasters and for everybody right
1: oh yeah you know especially if it's a bunch of extroverts like in general you know and i'm like an introvert extrovert and well no it's a lot of
0: You're an extroverted introvert?
1: I don't know. I'm like in the middle, like I like my alone time. But no, there's a lot of introverts there normally, not extroverts. There
0: are a lot of introverts there for sure. It's exhausting being a lot of people and being around a lot of people. Yes. People asking you a lot of questions. People kind of, you know, getting in your space. It it can be a lot. And that's why you got to take time for self-care and you are offering this is the last week to sign up for your retreat in sedona correct
1: oh yes there's one more week away it's next weekend it's gonna be amazing fun lots of yoga i have a sound bowl class and it's gonna be a great time to connect with other women that are experiencing trauma or going on their healing journey.
0: Yeah. It's going to be the start of a healing journey. You're going to talk a lot about self-care. You're teaching yoga and it's in Sedona. And what are the dates again?
1: October 13th through the 16th.
0: Fantastic. And there's what? One more slot left, right?
1: Yes. Just one more spot. So email me right away.
0: Email you Tara Newell PR at gmail.com. So speaking of people, you know, we, we just interviewed someone who's, episode uh, is going to be coming out in, in the next couple of weeks. They started a podcast and some people make movies about their lives. And that's what our guest today has done. And who was that guest?
1: We have Antoine Fisher. It was really cool because I remember reading his book, Finding Fish in class. And then I saw him on instagram somewhere and then i was like oh my gosh i need to connect with him he's a survivor and then i was so happy when he decided to come on the program yeah and share his story and connect with you
0: yeah it was really cool we had some you know because he has a, a history in ohio of course everybody comes from ohio it seems like you know amazing and i remember when the film came out and derek luke and and denzel washington it was a really big deal and the amount of success that he had and he's found as a writer and as a creative doing something positive with his story is is incredible. It's an inc- like that alone is an incredible story. To make it in Hollywood, it takes so much effort and, and to do it at such a high level and to see him just be such a, a gracious and wonderful human being and um and such a positive influence on so many people has been really amazing.
1: Yeah, no, he has just such great energy and you can honestly see it in his skin in his body just he doesn't hold his trauma
0: yeah well he's definitely done a a fantastic job of uh catharsis and doing something with it that's been very very positive so what do you say we get into his story
1: yes let's get into it
0: How cathartic was it for you to tell your story using art?
2: I didn't even know what the word cathartic meant until I wrote my story. (laughs) It fit the, that was the perfect word, you know, for, you know, I started remembering things, not that I have ever forgotten them, but once you start remembering things in order, like you decide, and then, you know, I've always used, you know, where it turns out music was like a bookmark. From my life so my memory yeah so i could remember i could hear a song and remember where i was and then i wouldn't just let the thought go i would be in there and even not reliving it but to like remembering and thinking about it and then i would remember something else and these weren't all bad memories some of these memories i have uh or with childhood friends and and uh times that i really enjoyed you know ohio you know can be harsh in the winter and then even in the summer but my favorite time of year was the fall when it was really pretty with uh with the leaves you know you yeah. know what i'm talking oh yes i do and it's i gorgeous. really enjoyed the smell of the leaves in in late summer i mean late went uh, fall and uh sometimes i would sit on the back porch with that cool breeze going the sun would be warm and the scent of the leaves somebody might be burning and it's like trapped in my memory and I and with a song to go with it and I would never forget that that combination of things and think about that's how I can I remember I was doing a Steve Harvey uh, his radio show and he's from Cleveland lived in the same neighborhood a couple blocks from yeah he is and and I said well, you know, Cleveland was was great. It was, you know, I, I don't mix what happened to me with my memory of growing up in Cleveland. Uh, so he said, well, if you think that neighborhood was good, you were really abused. I was thinking, you know, <laughs> he just, you know he, how he is, he's just making jokes. But I was thinking, if you had to spend that much time in, a, in an environment and couldn't find anything memorable, and a a good memory from it, then he was living in the city. He was living on outside the city. He was not collecting uh, memories like I was. And I think that's why he he said that he's a comedian, so he might have been joking. But knowing him, he probably wasn't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny.
1: I've actually seen him live for Family Feud. It's been great and he mentioned his radio show and how he had an issue with the airline and then he talked about it on the uh radio show and he got his luggage back
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah he's a cool guy yeah
1: well what was it like to have the movie made did you have to change a certain amount of things about your story to make it like adaptable for television
2: oh I don't think they changed very much from, you know, once it came went from the theater, they didn't alter it much. I think early on they were putting uh, disclaimers on it for because some people may not be ready for some of the subject matter, but uh, I think they pretty much left it the way it was. Uh, I was fortunate that I was the one that wrote it, and I had a lot more in it because I'm, all I knew was to write my story. But the studio said that uh, it would be a lot for uh, audience to sit for all for two hours and have one thing happen after another, and you know it's not even necessary. But I felt like I, when I was writing it, I didn't know how to write a screenplay. I was just writing my story. So uh, Todd and, and uh, Rand Haynes, and you know they all helped me uh, decide what stories I should put in. And that was a part of why it took so long also. And uh, so, you know, I think if someone, if I had told someone the story and someone else would have written it, I think it would not have been the same movie. It wouldn't have felt the same or maybe it wouldn't have the same impact. I think when you tell your story, there's some parts of your story or the way you might say it, only you can do that because some things you almost have to be a lived thing like you know like how could someone describe something they never experienced maybe they could do a good job but maybe they can't i think uh, some things only you can describe
1: yeah no i definitely think that in my case the only scene that was like a hundred percent on accurate and everything was my scene because they had to have my perspective of that yeah. and so it's crazy how you know when someone else writes your story they a- they have to change a certain amount of factors because you're not involved in it but yeah. I just love the fact that you were able to tell your story from your point of view and not have really anything change from your perspective
2: you, you know the studio uh- And Denzel and Todd, they were all really respectful of my story. And uh, I remember uh, when we we would be on the set and uh, Denzel would be talking to the crew and everyone. And then he says, so we're doing this for Antoine. And he said, not this guy right here, but the kid Antoine was. And just to remind people that, you know, you know, I appreciated that, you know, because he kept the focus on on what was important, you know? Like I was there, of course, <clears throat> and it was me as an adult, but I felt the same way. And I wrote a poetry about uh, that kind of thing. Uh, who will cry for the little boy who cries inside of me. I understood when I wrote that. I was 16, actually, when I wrote that, but I, I understood that It was a little boy inside of me that I wasn't anymore that I had to protect that kid. You know what I mean? So a part of the thing, and that kid was when that kid gets hurt, the adult gets hurt. But now I've grown to a, a place where I could think about those things and discuss what happened. And I don't get hurt like, like that, you know, you know, it's almost like being a parent to your younger self, you know, you gotta manage, you know, you gotta...
1: You What's know? called the inner child.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's right. I think that's a lot of things in, in that people, when they become an adult and they get hit in the face with this trauma that they experienced as a child and they're into adulthood and a lot of times, you know, they're in marriages or they're, they have children of their own and then it sort of hits them like a freight train. Mm. It's because they never dealt with that, you know what I mean? Yeah. And do you feel that your writing process was how you dealt with that, like ultimately, and that's like what put that to bed? Like when you finally, I know for me, when I finally saw it on the screen, I was like, okay, I put that to bed. Was that the feeling for you when you're in the theater and you're watching it and you see Derek Luke up there and Denzel Yeah, you're like, okay, this is done now.
2: Well, the movie, yes, the movie. But as far as my experiences, I always keep it all with me. That's why it doesn't hurt me. Bother me because I keep my whole life together. I uh, I I I sit and I think about things. You know, some people say, "Oh, forget about that." You can't forget about any portion of your life. It's not cool for no. someone to ask you to do that. Yeah. And uh, when people mistreat kids and they think the kid's not going to remember, the kid will remember. They're hoping that the kid will grow up and not remember, but they will remember. And for anybody to decide to forget about any portion of their life is not it's not cool you know how can you make a better life in the future if you can't remember what happened what, what's wrong or how you got to the place where you already have to remember and it doesn't mean you have to wallow in the pain of it you know this is why we have therapy this is why sometimes you have to <laughs> be honest with yourself were you in part responsible or uh, You know, in life, we know sometimes we got to take smacks in life and walk away. You know, sometimes you don't get to hit people back. Sometimes, you know, once you understand that, then you won't be thinking like a a vengeful person. And I'm just here for not for this adult me. This adult me has to help the one that I was that is in pain. You don't want to show yourself as an adult. Still reeling from pain from your childhood, so you have to work on yourself constantly, you know so I think
1: a hundred percent, and I think it comes out especially in driving. <laughs> Mm -hmm. like you could really see people's trauma come out and driving because you know people get angry at each other and then it's like okay if that person flips me off I actually should calm down I shouldn't retaliate I shouldn't go chase them down and have this (laughs) disagreement with them you know you need to let it go because that's how that's how dangerous incidents happen
2: yeah yeah and you know what sometimes you can think to yourself okay, I could get upset about this, but tonight about nine o'clock, I won't even be thinking about this. I'm not going to let this moment uh, alter my life. Tell me an hour from now, if somebody's yelling at you, if you could manage to think like, as soon as I'm away from this person who I don't know, I'll never think of this again. So I don't get caught up in the net. It's like a net, you know what I mean? Somebody got a big net and they're going to throw it over you. And then once they get you in the net, Who knows, the police might show up, you know, the person might hurt you. Or if you have a conscience, you may say something that after it's gone, you wish you hadn't said. So sometimes it's better to just take a lick and just go
0: home, you know, make sure you get to go home. I think that is sage advice because you said, I'm not gonna let this moment alter my life because so many times you see people do that. They get angry, they retaliate, and then all of a sudden, you know, maybe they hit somebody with a car and somebody gets killed. Now you're going to prison for ten years versus just walk away. I just I think and, and and I'm really asking you this, when you look at societal impacts of violence, do you think that if people just took a pause and just said, I need to just step away, we'd be much better served than seeing this reactive culture that we live in? Yes.
2: You know what? You have to People don't, I think, I don't know, I don't know if I've learned so much that I could give advice, but sometimes people are so uh, adamant to show somebody else, like, I'm not going to let you talk to me like that. Like, you know, you know or oh, I can't let you uh, get the better of me. And so i have to do this to you. Or I can't let you get in front of me. You know, like if you're on the freeway and you come to an a on-ramp, you know that people are getting on the freeway. You got to let them on, you know, so you slow down so they can get on the freeway. But some people won't slow down, they'll speed up and try to it could cause an accident. Do they care? No. But I always, I, you see people have a blinker on, you know, they want to get over. I don't have a, you have to practice not being that way. You have to think about it. You have to say, if somebody, when you get out on the freeway, if somebody wants to get over, I'm going to let them over. If someone wants to get on the, on the freeway, I'm going to slow down so they can get off the ramp. You know what I mean? And if you keep practicing doing that, it'll just become a habit and not letting anyone get in front of you. And, you know, some people don't even know they do that. And that's just the freeway. But in life, you could be on the, in a the workplace. Uh, they, they won't uh, tell you something that might, advance you in your career because they're not getting advancement. They can't take it and just feel good about it. You know, sometimes helping people makes you feel good. You know, and some people, uh, they let um, I'm not going to help you because nobody helped me kind of thing. It's not the way Ultimately, you wind up my age and being angry. I'm not an angry dude, you know? I could, you know, in this time, I could have a lot to be angry about, but anybody could, anybody 30 years old, you know, if you collected things like that and nobody ever gave me a break, nobody ever lets me on the freeway, nobody never lets me over, they drive too fast. Uh, People drive up close behind you if you're in the the diamond lane, So I'm going to put my brakes on, you know, I just first opportunity get out of the diamond lane and get into a lane that's moving to the speed I want to go at, you know, rather than having problems on freeway. And so I use the freeway as a metaphor, because every time you leave your house, whether you're walking down the street, you're on the freeway, there's all these people around and these people could hurt you. They could, you know, someone who could help you, but you don't know. So you, you kinda, kinda mind your business and keep your eyes open, you know? Yeah. And there's nice people in the world too. Can't, can't forget about that, you know?
0: I gotta tell you something, Antoine. I just I just typed you in because you said something my age. And I'm like, God, this guy doesn't look that old. <laughs> I just looked up your age. <laughs> Man. I'm 64. You look fantastic, my friend. And that is, a, and that is an absolute testament to you. Like it doesn't wear on your face. You know what I mean? The trauma, yeah. you know what I mean? Of just your whole vibe is just, is expressed just in how you look like this is not, you know what I mean? This is what this looks like when you are, yeah. are dealing with this and, and handling it in the right way. My younger daughter
2: says, you know, dad, you don't have any wrinkles at all, you know? i said because when i was a kid i wasn't grinning all the time
0: (laughs) (laughs) i hear that
1: oh my gosh (laughs) and how old are your kids now
0: oh
2: they're adults now uh i have a a 25 year old daughter and a 21 year old daughter yeah
1: okay and then you told me that you were paying for the college and They're going off to college, or they went off to college.
2: Yes, well, I have one that finished at UCSB, and one who uh, finished. She finished at uh, SDSU. Now she's at Dominguez Hills. She's getting a master's degree, and she's uh, uh, applying for programs for PhD. Uh, She's doing that now. She's finishing up her thesis, uh, her master's thing, and uh, so. I, you know what? I, I always tell people I I've spent my the money that I've made I spend it on education and housing. Now my car, people say, oh Antoine, why don't you buy a new car? My car is like 16 years old. It's a Dodge Charger. When it first came out, I said, oh I, I've always wanted a muscle car from when I grew up. When I first saw the GTO, the first GTO, I said, wow, I gotta get me one when I get older. And I realized, oh, they're not gonna be making those cars, so. I bought myself a muscle car, and when I got it, I said, this is the old car that I wanted. It was brand new, but now it's older, but it runs like a brand new car. But the the reason why I bring it up is because every time I see it, I, it reminds me that I wasn't selfish. Education and housing. No
0: cars for Antoine.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm not a car person either. I feel you. <laughs> as long as it's clean, you know?
1: I like my decent car. Yeah. I like (laughs) one that runs good, that's safe. Yeah. I actually have a Mercedes, but it was one of the inexpensive Mercedes on the lot, and it was actually less than a Honda Pilot. Yeah. Because I was looking at Honda Pilots as well.
2: You know, Mercedes makes so many types of cars. Uh, It's the emblem that people are buying, really, I guess. But... There's so many different types. They have good safety. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I guess that's true, too. Yeah.
1: Well, and then I have a buddy that works there. So when I bring in my car, it's taken care of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, Yeah. yeah, that's why I have that car. But I'm like, I, you know, cars are just cars. And education is so important.
2: Yeah, because... The car one day will be gone, but and I will be gone too. And but the education my kids got, you know, won't be. They'll be here long after me, and uh, that is something that to have until they're not here any longer that you just can't, yeah. you know, buy like you can buy a car. You know?
1: Yeah. No, one hundred percent.
2: Yeah, so those things matter more, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, I love the life that you created for yourself. It seems like a good life.
0: It's quiet. I like that. (laughs) Now, is it quiet because there's the writer's strike going on? So are you quiet? Because you said you still actively write, (laughs) correct? Well, yeah, you have to keep... You
2: know, actually, it's probably the best time to write. In 2010, or 8, there was a writer's strike, and i found that wow rather than uh not do anything it'd be a perfect time to write something because then there's no pressure you don't feel pressure oh i have to finish so i can give it to a producer or a studio or something but that's not possible right now so the pressure of trying trying to get something together in a limited amount of time it'd be better to be able to take your time and think about dialogue and so that Characters that sound like real people—you won't just blow through it, you know, like that. Yeah. So yeah, we'll strike. So I'm so I'm writing <laughs> <laughs> for myself. So everybody know.
1: I love that. Well, I just love the positivity that you have, because that's a part of moving on from trauma. And that post progression part of trauma is when you're able to take it and you turn it into something good, and you're able to move past it and see the positivity of it.
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, if you had a choice to be angry your whole life over something, uh, or happy, or to some degree, I would choose to be happy. And things that happen uh, in your childhood, you you have to get help for them, and then you have to help yourself too. You have to think, and you have to uh, remember things, and uh, remember you have worth, a lot of worth, value, you know. And, and you have to be empathetic, like my foster parents. i I became empathetic toward them. You know, I consider where they came from, their mentality, the education that they didn't get, the worldliness uh, uh, or their knowledge of the world, how they were treated as as people in the South. You know, my foster father was his father was a slave. So if my foster father's father uh, uh, punished him a certain way, which was the way his grandfather was punished, then they're gonna punish me, start going down the line. I would be getting punished that way too. At some point, people somebody has to stop. I'm the one that did yeah. not punish my kid. I threaten them though. <laughs> 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 I said, I would say like, you know, if you don't stop, you're gonna get your spank. Like one spank. But they never got the spank. And but what I do have that works. My older daughter would say uh, things like, did he
0: give you the look? Yeah.
2: I said, what's the look? They said, you know what the look is? <laughs> like,
0: My mother did the same thing. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. So I I feel proud of myself that I did not continue that. But I did understand how they came to be that way. So they kind of took some of the the, the anger away because some of it was kind of a historical uh i don't know what they call it when one generation does something and then then the next because it's learning it's learned behavior
1: it's generational trauma you know yes yeah
0: epigen epigenetics yeah
1: yeah the epigenetics the generational trauma yeah
0: yeah that's
2: what it is yeah so if you want to if if you want to get past uh something someone who hurt you uh it's hard to be empathetic towards some people and it would have been hard for me when i was younger some people i, I feel that the empathy is not going to work with some people viewing them with empathy some people it will work like i i could do that with my foster parents because i can consider the time in our history when they were born when they were raised who raised them and the environment and so okay but in your case uh John did not does not deserve any empathy. He was like a selfish user, and uh her uh, you know uh, uh, somebody only thinks of himself and it's just like have all the potential to be doing good things in the world.
1: like he was so smart. But he chose to do bad things, and same with Collier's dad. They're actually both named John. <laughs> wow. um, yeah. So you know they just chose the wrong paths in life, and I think it was partially because they were taught differently, and also because their brains didn't have that capability.
0: Mm.
2: Well, then it sounds like you empathizing there a little. At least you understand. Where yeah. It
1: comes from. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's a certain level that you need to understand your abuser on and why they do certain things. Otherwise you don't have understanding of trauma. Yes.
0: Yeah. I unfortunately did not discover that about my father. My father was just a psychopath.
2: Wow.
0: An abuser from from Drum Street. I thought that I would discover that he had been, you know, physically, sexually abused as a child. And that's what had molded him into becoming a murderer. Right. And when I was doing, you know, pre-production for my film, I thought I was going to find this out. And I, and I actually found out that he was abusing his siblings growing up, cause he was the oldest sibling and he was not abused. <laughs> he just was that way.
2: Yeah. And yeah. Wow crazy
1: so it's like this complexity of abusers you know
2: yeah yeah you know what when you have kids and you raise them in a way they're they're not around abuse and they've never been abused or anything and then you know you know when they get out into the world they're going to meet other people they're going to you know your daughter's going to meet boys and Yes, son is gonna meet girls and these people may have been abused and they're gonna be blindsided by the whole thing. Because, uh, you know, you, you never feel like you got a chance to say everything. Sometime when you have kids and they get grown and then, and, and, you know, it's one thing I've thought about, you know, the older I get, the more I feel like I know about, but a lot of young people don't wanna hear that. <laughs> they don't wanna hear it. So, I'm I'm more of like an advisor now, like and not, you know, you can't just like <laughs> say my daughter say, oh, don't do that, like I would when she was younger. She's like, I could tell you how to do that, or you just have to watch until they say, okay, dad, what would you do? <laughs> yeah, see, I get I get sometimes sometimes I I'm dad, sometimes I'm daddy. When I'm when I'm daddy, I like that, you know. Cause they, it feels more like when they were kids, but you know they're grown, so you know sometimes they don't. But you know, it's having kids makes life for really worthwhile for me, and and you know I can't imagine why people would do things to young people, babies and kids, uh, because it's it get you know like right now I don't know, I I probably wouldn't be a screenwriter. I probably write for food, you know. You know i would probably write a screenplay make the money and run out of money and then write another screenplay but now you know it's given me a life having kids some something to do uh, something to to uh be a part of and to be a part of helping to shape uh, somebody and to see them you know graduate high school and college and you know go out into the world and you know and then they, you know, call and say, Hey dad, how you doing? <laughs> yeah. But so like, you should call me more, you know? They could call me every day and uh-huh. it would be fine with me. But you know, a week go by, I'm like, hey, you can't call your dad. <laughs> but, but this is how it goes though. So it's, it's a beautiful life, you know? And you know, and sometimes I think about my story and I think like, wow. If I hadn't had all those things happen, I wouldn't have a story to tell. And apparently, my story has helped a lot of people. And so I tried to frame it that way. You know, there was not that that was the purpose, but uh, it's, it's done a social service.
1: A hundred percent.
2: Absolutely. But if I hadn't told it, like we are all talking now, and we've all had our trauma. Uh, Telling our stories uh, helps other people, even if it will inform them that they're not the only ones. And we, all three of us, have a a varying degree of of what our trauma was, but we're all here together talking about it. And I think that's great, because if you don't talk about it, I think we might have even... Or, you know, save people by talking about our
1: trauma. And there's something that Collier always says on the podcast. What do you say, Collier?
0: Well, I was going to say we're all part of a squad that no one really wants to be a part of. But we're all a part of the survivor squad. Yeah. (laughs) Antoine, I would, you know, what would you say to a young Antoine Fisher who's out there? What would you tell them? What would be your, if you could say one thing to someone who's going through something like that, what would that be?
2: Well, you know, like for a long time, I didn't feel like I had value, you know, uh, because I was told that when I was younger. But as I grew, I realized I had a lot of value. And I didn't have anything to offer until I realized, I joined the Navy and realized I had a lot to offer. They expected me to do a job, a lot of jobs. And you can't say no. And I didn't have the self-esteem or the the uh, self-esteem to believe that I could accomplish some of the things I wound up accomplishing but I was put in an environment where they don't let you say no, they don't accept it. And so you wind up doing things like I have done so many like things that I would never have a chance to discover that I was capable of doing, uh, but I got that chance in the service. And I realized I have value. When people hire people, they're hiring them for the value that they have. And uh, you have to, um, when you're young, have to remember that I have something to offer. I'm not just here and for abuse, or to be put down. Uh, I have a value, and I'm going to find out what that value is. Early on, in the Navy, when I first joined the Navy, I didn't qualify for any school. So I was in this department called deck department. We did all the menial jobs like paint the ship and you know, swab the deck, do anything, but you can, what they call, strike out of that, meaning do the courses, go to the board, and they'll send you to school, and then you'll become, you'll do that job. So I joined the Navy. I was in deck department, and I identified a job that I wanted to do while I was there. I did the courses. I did everything I was supposed to do, and I became that... You know, I was in that job and because I'm dyslexic, you know, in the Navy, you have to take tests in order to make rank. I just believed in myself and I was making rank like everyone else. And I realized that I wasn't like below average. I wasn't above average. I was average, which was normal. And when you learn those kind of things about yourself and you have to want to find out what your value is it'll make you feel powerful, even if it was like, I'm good at, um, let's say, I'm good at washing dishes, which probably nobody does anymore. But if you do a good job at it, you become good at it. For example, when I was in the Navy, a part of my job was to cut hair. They're called ship servicemen. They do everything, like they run the ship store, any retail thing, like. the base club, you know, is what what I did. So my first job was they sent me to school to be a barber, you know, in the military, everybody got to have a haircut. Uh, I decided I was going to be the best barber in the Navy. And I feel like I became that. And what made me think that was because the captain of the, this one ship I was on liked the way I cut hair so well, he told the Commodore to come and get his hair cut by me. So the Commodore, was just stationed on the base. He'd come on this ship, and I would have to wait there after hours and cut his hair. Then uh, Rear Admiral Ramsey was starting to get his hair cut for me. So all these big, uh, you know, admirals and commodores and captains were coming to our ship to get their hair cut up from uh, me. And I had that feeling like, you know, I did when I graduated from high school in boot camp. I wish somebody could see me. You know, they're all in there talking, you know, whatever they're talking, important things. And you see their there hats has all these scrambled eggs all over it and, you know, they're powerful people. But there's something they wanted from me. And I was just a third-class petty officer. It was something that I had to offer that they wanted. So they came to get it and they could only get it from me. So I realized that I found out how to be powerful through a little job that I had you have to do your best
1: wow well I think that is the perfect note to end on today where can we find you on social media or your book your movie Um,
2: oh my website is AntoineFisher.net and I have an Instagram page and it's Antoine Fisher
0: official I think it is
2: Antoine Fisher, Donald Fisher, one of those. Got to help me out with that one. Though.
0: Well, we will put links to the, in the show notes of today's episode for all of Antoine Fisher's links, yeah. <laughs> the appropriate ones. Um, Antoine, <laughs> thank you so much for joining the program. And as I always say at the end of it, we are all part of a squad that no one really wants to be a part of. We are all a part of the Survivor Squad. Antoine Fisher, thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun
1: uh, hey, talking you. to
0: like-minded
2: people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
2: Absolutely.
1: Well, thank you. All right. I really love this episode and I think that there's some great little moments in our Patreon that people could check out, especially with you guys talking about Ohio.
0: Yeah, our little Ohio connection is has been very cool talk about the orchestra all of that yeah there's some there's some really great stuff and uh i'm i'm just so grateful that he came on the program i mean and now the writer's strike is over so he's probably very busy (laughs) you're writing and and working on all his projects but i'm so glad that he could take time out to be on our program
1: yes no i'm so thankful and then he's in la you guys are Ohio to L.A. transplants, and it's <laughs> we are just so funny because I'm just sitting back every single time we have a guest on, and they're like, oh, I'm from Ohio. I'm from this area, and I'm like, I just need to visit Ohio one day just to get the layout of the land. No, you don't. No, I don't.
0: No, you don't. There's a reason why we're all out here. Oh, <laughs> So, Tara, we have just finished Crime Con. We did True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival in August. September was CrimeCon. But where are we going to be in the next couple of weeks?
1: We are going to be at Obsess Fest in Dallas, Texas. It's going to yes. be a blast. There's going to be a drag bingo, drag brunches. There's going to be a Q&A with us.
0: And other true crime podcasters, other true crime creators, all your favorite creators. We're all coming together with... True Crime Obsessed and their second year of Obsessed Fest. And we are, well, we're obsessed that we're gonna be there. We're just stoked to be a part of it.
1: Oh, yes. And it's different from all the other festivals that we have been at. It's a different crowd. It's still True Crime. Loving crowd mm-hmm. and true crime loving crowd. You know, I'm just gonna say that.
0: <laughs> yes. And they, are, but they're all fan base is very, very cool. It's of merch that we've made for Obsess Fest this time, right? Like your true crime Barbie shirt.
1: Oh, yes. I'm so excited for that shirt. I just can't wait for it to come in the mail. And then I get to try it on, take a picture in it, maybe get my hair all pretty, do some Barbie outfits, make it just, you know, pink and fabulous. Yes,
0: we do have exclusive merch that will be available at Obsessed Fest. And of course, we also have that on our store, which there are links to in the show notes of today's episode.
1: Yes. Until next time, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell.
0: And I'm Collier Landry.
1: And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast.
0: We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.